like weird that you're here. Uh, so, guys, I'd uh, like to just uh, welcome Craig McDowell. Craig's going to talk to us about learning to love. Let's give Craig a warm welcome. Love you, Tom. Well, I can tell you it's, it's, one, it's one nice thing about having your brother who runs this uh, retreat because he had, I went to him about two weeks ago. I said, Trevor, when am I speaking? He said, oh, I got you Saturday night. I said, Trevor, get me on Friday night. I want to get in and get out. I want to be able to sleep and eat the rest of the trip. So, Jason, sorry I bumped you up from tonight to Saturday. <laughs> I hope you get some sleep tonight. <laughs> no, but I appreciate you having me. Um, can I start off with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, oh, it never gets sick. Um, you've seen the lives change, Lord, and what you've done in the life of Stephen. Lord, you are so good. Um, I'm so thankful for these guys, for this fellowship, Lord. I just pray this is a week of uh, fellowship, of encouragement for one another. Uh, Lord, we are, we're at war, and the time is drawing near, Lord. Um, and I just pray you get us home safely. And it's in your name I pray, amen. amen. Well, uh, has anyone ever been popped in the nose or punched in the face? I remember in a baseball game, uh, Mark got a baseball in his nose, and that thing was just gushing blood, and, and he was out. And I've never really, I've never been punched in the face, and I've actually been in two fights in my life. One was when I was 16 over a pair of keys with my brother Mark. And I was, I was so afraid to hit him in the jaw, I decided to hit him on the top of the head, and I broke my hand. And then the other fight I was in, I was 23 years old. It was Christmas night, um, and it was outside of a bar. And that one didn't turn out very favorably either because I broke my ankle on that one. So I'm really not a great lover or a great fighter, so I'm kind of in trouble. But I bring up that fight and, and, and pain because this past year I've been in a struggle um, that I really haven't been in uh, for a for the 18 years that I've been a Christian man. And for the first time, I've been digging into these areas of my life that I've been too fearful to expose. And so about a year ago, this came out of nowhere. Work was happening. My family was healthy. And I just felt like I got clobbered by God. And he's just telling you, Craig, you need to take care of this. Take care of this. And so out of nowhere, um, I came up with this topic. And it's, it's about this topic of love. And so as I've been painstakingly been peeling back the onion of my Christian life, I'm finding that there's areas in my life that there's lots of decay. And there's areas that I haven't been dealing with for a long time. So I've been hanging in there, and I've been digging deep, and I've just been trying to deal with it one day at a time. So this year in my Christian walk has probably been one of the toughest years of my life on one hand, and yet probably one of the most rewarding uh, on the other. I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times I find myself, I get emotional about things that I have no business getting emotional about it. I'm almost embarrassed about it, like, Craig, what what are you crying for? There's no need to cry here. And then there's other times I find that, you know, there's something that I probably should be hurting and I I probably should be weeping about, yet there's like zero emotion. And so it's kind of been this flip-flop and this just disorganization with uh, with my emotions. 
But this year, for the first time in 18 years, I found myself weeping before God. I'd never wept before God, except for my conversion on I-15 in Utah, where I was all by myself in a truck, and I broke down, and that's where I accepted Christ. But since then, I, I just I hadn't find myself weeping. So as I've been reading, reading Psalms, the Psalms have just been becoming a lot more real to me. Psalm 61, one, uh, David says, Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. And those, these, these psalms have just so much more meaning. I, I, can, I, can, I know where David is coming from, and I know that his heart is just crying out for God. In First Kings, Solomon says, Now, O Lord God, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And I, I kind of been sense that I've been... Um, I, I, I can identify with Solomon, and like when I'm on this topic of love, I don't know what I'm talking about, and I'm on a process. And Matthew 18 says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, interestingly enough, God used the longest lasting relationship in my life to teach me this principle of love, and it happened to be my mom. I've, always, I've loved my mom. We've, we always had, growing up, we were the house where we were, we were home base for the neighborhood. Kids came over. It was an open-door policy. We could run through the hallways. We could jump on the couch. We could come and go as we please. And it's where everyone wanted to be because there weren't any rules. And we actually moved miles away when I was 11. And sure enough, that house became home central for everyone. Everyone took the, the trip over there. Um, but as wonderful as my mom is, there was a part of the relationship that was non-existent. It was missing. I never received any affection from my mom, and my mom never told me she loved me. And I, I have this vivid scene of my, uh, I was about 19 years old, and I was coming out of the kitchen, and I look left, and I, I, my dad's there, and he's hugging my mom, yet her arms are just down to her side, and she just had this sad look on her face. And the thing is just seared it within my memory. And it, I think I kept it there. And I said, wow, I, I can't, one, I can't love my mom. And I understand maybe a little bit more why she's not loving, loving me the way I want to be loved. So I, would, I stuffed all these feelings down. I never talked to him. I didn't talk to my brothers. I didn't talk to my dad about this. And I kind of did a little uh, precursor to this message over a Bible study and I discovered I didn't even really talk to my wife about this. Um, but as my relationship went on with my mom, um, I just started to evoke anger in me. And I would become mad, and she became more cynical as she became older. And I would think to myself, when she would come over, and I have these beautiful hibiscus hedges in my front yard, and she'd come over and she'd say, Craig, why don't you trim those? You're overtaking your sidewalk. You know, it's like, dang, I, I can't do anything right. Um, so it got to the point where I was talking to Mark one, one afternoon. I said, I don't even want to be around her. I never lost my cool with her. I was, I always stayed pretty self-control. As I said, I just, I just kept pressing all these feelings down within me. Um, and I became very prideful and I think there is a, a long route of bitterness taking place. And so as, as I started thinking about my relationship with my mom, I'm like, how come she hasn't loved me the way I wanted to be loved? And so 
I, I looked at her father and the relationship with her father. And to date, my grandpa was the coldest man I've ever met. He would sit on the couch. Everyone served him. My mom catered to him. I never saw him give my mom a hug. I never saw any affection. And so I'm thinking, gosh, it makes sense. This is a relationship that my mom had with her grandpa. Or with my grandpa, she never learned to love. She, she hasn't learned how to love me. And so this past year, then I've been pulling back the onion a little bit more, and I've been looking at my relationship with my wife and my kids. And lo and behold, I'm a lot like my mother, a lot more than I ever anticipated or wanted to be. And so I just, I just was distra- distraught over that. And um, so it reminds me of a story about Johnny and Susie. Uh, Johnny and Susie had their first Thanksgiving dinner. And Susie asked Johnny uh, to cut the ham, get the ham ready for Thanksgiving. So she asked him, he asked her, how do I prepare this thing? And she said, well, just cut two, two inches off of the ham, stick it in the pan, put brown sugar on it, and throw it in the oven. He's like, cut two inches off the ham? Why do you want me to do that? He says, she says, well, that's the way my mom taught me. She's been doing it for 30 years. We've been doing, that's just how you cook a ham. He said, uh, why don't you ask your mom why she did it? So at dinner time, they call mom, and Susie asks her mom, Mom, why did, when growing up, you taught me to cut a ham, you, t- you told me to cut two inches off of it. Why did we do that? She said, because my mom taught me that's how you do it. You, cook, you cut the two inches off the ham, it probably gives it more flavor. Johnny's not liking that answer. So after dinner, they get on with Grandma, and they call Grandma, and they said, Grandma, why did we cut two inches off the ham every Thanksgiving? She said, oh, well, the pan was too short. And so that's just, that's just to illustrate asking why is an important question. That's kind of where I am in this process um, with my mom and, and loving her. And so I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I went to... Uh, um, a gentleman, and I was, I said, I need to talk to someone about this. So I was talking to him about that. And he said, well, why don't you tell her you love her? I mean, he may have, he must have just told me to jump off a bridge because it instantly invoked fear. It's like, you don't understand. My mom and I do not have a relationship like that. We don't say I love you and we don't hug. And he said, just try it. You never know. This could be a self-fulfilling um, prophecy. And so I met, uh, I knew I was meeting him the next month, and it was three days before I was meeting him. I said, I, I can't let this guy down. I've got to tell my mom I love her. And so I caught her in, in the gas station. She was in the middle aisle, and I said, this is where I'm going to go do it. So I was, I was talking to my mom, and I think I probably got a, got a walking st- start before I told her. And as I'm walking by, I said, love you, mom. And I didn't say I love you because I don't want to make it that personal. And I heard as I was walking by, I love you too. And so I got in my car. Five years to hear this. And it was just as wonderful as I anticipated it. And so that's kind of where I am the past year with my mother. I'm on this process, and I'm trying to learn about love and, and what it means for me. So did you know that God loves us, that he elected us, that there's nothing we brought to the table 
that has influenced God's love for us or prompted it in any way. God's love for us is unconditional, no strings attached. He will not love you any more or any less than he does today. He accepts me completely, right? I disappoint God more often than I ever want to, but there will never be a time that God's going to reject me. I am his unconditionally for eternity. There's no reciprocity. There's no condition, zero strings attached. Now that's the grace of God. That's the love I'm speaking about tonight. That's agape love. It's the love that seeks the best interests of another. And so if God's love is that complete, then why does he make love a command? To say God's love is unconditional is not to say that he doesn't have standards. We have a bunch of clean free guys in here, and we have manuals and manuals and manuals of all the standards we have. And it's not to be a pain in these guys' butts, but it's so they can be a success at the company they're working with. And so it is with God's standards. They're not to be punitive or to punish us, but they're so we could milk all the meaning God poured into life. John 10.1 says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So love is a command. And principle number one of that command is love is always active. God's love for man is always active. Mark, you read John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 10, and Jeremiah 31, 3. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yeah, so God loved, so loved the world he gave his only son, right? It's active. I can read 1 John 4.10 if you get Jeremiah 31.3. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. So as you see, God's love for man is always active. And we show our love for God. In the same way, John fourteen twenty one. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. Yeah, we show our love to God by keeping his commandments. Again, active. And man's love for man is always active. Matthew seven twelve. Matthew seven twelve and everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Yeah, so, again, it's active. We treat people the same way we want to be treated. So loving God always results in keeping the commandments. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37. Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 39. Yeah. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. Yeah, so we love God, we love people, and from there is a laundry line of commandments. We'll keep the commandments if we love. 
And God says, if you love me, you will obey me. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Yeah. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Yeah, but love is a one-way street. It's a one-way street in that all obedient... All love will lead to obedience, but not all all obedience is motivated by love. Right? Early on in my marriage, I would would come home and invariably there would be a stack full of dishes on the, next to the the sink. And it drove me crazy. So I want to serve my wife. So I go over there and serve my wife and I'm fuming inside, right? I'm so pissed off that I have to do the dishes as I get home from work. So it's a one-way street that, although maybe I may be serving my wife, I am definitely not loving her. Right? And obedience can be motivated in several ways. Love definitely is one way um, obedience can be motivated. But we're also motivated by fear, the fear of God. And we can also be motivated by rewards. So if you love me, you will obey me. But just because you obey doesn't mean you are loving so if I come to you guys and say I'm divorcing my wife, you know I'm not loving my wife. But just because I stay in a marriage with my wife doesn't mean that I'm loving her. Right? It's a street that only goes in one direction, not two. So let's talk a minute about how fear and rewards play a role in love. And I think it has to do with... Wait, that's not... Right, it has to do with, as this illustration shows, uh, there are greater goods and lesser goods. Right, it's unnatural to love the way the Bible tells us. It's unnatural to love people, and it's unnatural to love the Lord. We need a bridge to get us to love what we ought to love. And so that's why God gave us a temporal hope on the left, right? Temporal hope is a good. It's a lesser good, but it's a good that we know instinctively, right? We all know a temporal hope. We know it by nature. Again, you guys from Clean Freak. Mm, okay, thanks. Right, a temp, what is a temporal hope? A lot of you guys come to work every two, every two weeks you get paid, right? Is that a good? You guys glad you get paid every two weeks? Yeah, of course. That's a temporal hope. We, you work hard. You want to get paid. Um, but God calls on us to subordinate our temporal hope for an eternal hope. Right? And then, and, I'm sorry. Yeah. God calls us to uh, subordinate our temporal hope for an eternal hope. And when we subordinate our temporal hope for an eternal hope, we're learning to love the greatest good, which is Christ himself. Does that make sense? Like, I, I obey lots of commands because of my love for Christ. But when I have to vote against myself, and I refrain from doing something that I really, really want to do, or I do something that I really, really don't want to do, I, I, I tend to need a different motivation. And that's where the fear of God really keeps me out of a lot of trouble. So we need this, this bridge of, the, of eternal hope to get us to love what we would never do on our own, um, which is love for Christ. 
And so God uses our temporal hope as that mechanism, right? Because if agape love requires sacrifice and laying down your life, then you need something to sacrifice. And it's our temporal hope that we sacrifice for the greater hope, which is eternal hope. Um, Any questions? Clear as mud? The fear and the rewards in the bottom. Yeah, so fear and rewards, those are the, those are the, the supporting pillars of your eternal hope. Those, when I vote against myself, these are the motivators that I, that I go to, right? That fear means fear of God, and rewards means um, eternal profit, right? So God calls us not to work for temporal profit, but eternal profit. And in order to do that, you need to be motivated by fear and rewards, right? The fear of God is not natural to a man. Neither is eternal profit is not natural to a man. This temporal hope, this, this comes natural to a man. But eternal hope is a muscle that needs to be exercised over time. And so getting to love Christ, the greatest good, is a process. This isn't something you wake up at night and say, I'm going to start loving God as I ought to. This is definitely a process. And so when we read the Bible, we, right, we gain knowledge. We read the Bible to gain knowledge of the commandments, right? If the Bible didn't tell me to love my enemies, I would never get there on my own. That is not a natural thought to man, is to love your enemy. Um, so just having the knowledge isn't sufficient, though. The knowledge for the Bible is always has an end in love. Could you read uh, Ephesians 3.19? Ephesians 3.19, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Yeah, so the end is not knowledge, guys. The, the end, the reason God takes the whole Bible to talk about love is because he's got something to say about it. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, knowledge will be done away with, but love lasts forever. Or 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, um, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And again, in 1 Timothy 1.5, God says the goal of everything, or the apostles say the goal of all of our teaching is love. So the goal of everyone's Christian walk in here is to learn how to love. It's not to become a smarter Christian. Right, and that's why Jesus and all the New Testament writers put the emphasis on love and not obedience. John, who was referred to early on his ministry as the son of thunder, was later referred to as the apostle of love. And in 1 John uh, 1.4, John mentions the word love 26 times. It's as if he had some obsession with it. And so this is why Jesus said you will fulfill the commandments if you love. And as I said, this is very much a process. You don't wake up one day and start loving as you ought to. And the, the Jews had the same problem, right? They uh, had good intent to keep the commandments of God and all the festivals and make uh, all the sacrifices. But God hammers them and says, quit doing evil. Mark, could you read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 through 14? 
And then verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instructions of your, our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure sin and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Yep, so here they are keeping all the commandments, but God says cease to do evil. Can you read Isaiah twenty nine thirteen? Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. That was twenty nine thirteen? Yes. Okay, yeah. So, God, right, is saying that our attitudes are of supreme importance. God was after their hearts, right? Just after he's after my heart and he's after your heart. Because if God has your heart, he has you, right? So love is more than keeping the commandments. So to summarize, love is a command. It's always active. It takes initiative. And we need a bridge of eternal hope to get us there, to love what we ought to. Let's talk about principle number two. Love is by faith. So faith is commitment before knowing. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1, um, outlines that, right? So faith is taking a risk. When you live by faith, you are taking a risk. When I commit myself to something before I know, that is taking a risk. So love is taken by faith, right? That's why when my wife tells me she loves me, I don't think there's been a day that goes by in the last 16 years that my wife hasn't told me she loves me. And I, I never get sick of hearing those words. I don't know about you gentlemen, right? But only the secure can take risks. Insecure people are afraid to take risks, and you can tell where a person is secure by the risks he's willing to take. Let me illustrate. I missed it. Oh, I'm too sorry.
So it makes the point, I am not that secure. I would not take that risk. Right? So you can tell where a person is secure by the risks he's willing to take. Everyone in this room is insecures, insecure in areas of their life. No one is a totally secure person. Right? It's just a matter of pushing enough buttons to find out where it is. So I will only take areas where I'm secure in. So only the secure can love. Insecure people are not capable of love. Why? Because the insecure person is so wrapped up in their own life, right? His job, his bank account, uh, his reputation. He just gets too bogged down uh, with life. And he's only concerned about his interest. And he's just trying to hold it all together, right? Insecure people can't love. So because love is, um, because the person who loves is taking a risk, he's committing his love to someone not knowing if that love will be returned, right? Let's not kid ourselves. When you love and it's not returned, it hurts, right? My tendency when, I'm, when my love isn't returned is for me to retreat or I'll just go cold on you. So that's why we need to get into our Bibles, guys. And read page after page the love God has for us. For instance, Romans 38, 8, 35 through 39. Romans 8, 35. Yeah. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. So guys, this is why we get into our Bibles and we read verses and passages like this, because this is what's going to bring security into your life. These are the messages that are going to free a man up for you to love. Make sense? So let's talk a little bit about imparting love one to another. Can you read First Thessalonians 3.12? And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Yeah, so how do you, how do you increase and abound in love? First, I would suggest, um, you, how do you view people, right? Are you quicker to impute evil to a person or good to that person? So how do you, what is your view of a person, are you quicker to find fault or are you quicker to give someone the benefit of the doubt, even if, it's, even if you look like a fool for doing so? I was in California uh, just this past summer, and I enjoy going to the grocery store. And my wife says, you know, we're having steak that night, so she says, run down there, so I do. And as I'm going through the, the grocery store, I come up to the meat department. And a lady, the meat, you know, the meat department's probably... 10 feet, the lady has her sharpening cart 
uh, parallel with half the section of the meat department. And then she's taking up the other half of the meat department. And so she's sitting there for about 20 seconds. She's poking all the meat and I'm watching her and I'm wondering why she doesn't have eyes in the back of her head and notice me and move over. But she doesn't. So she continues on for probably another 25 seconds. Now I've been sitting there a minute watching her poke all my meat. And so I'm just getting frustrated. I mean, here I am in Newport, California. I got nothing else to do. I'm in the meat department. And this guy, this lady's ruining my trip. And so that's what I mean. Are you quicker to find fault in someone? Or are you quicker to give someone the benefit of the doubt? Because sure enough, had she turned around and said, oh, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry. I would have said, oh, no, not a problem, right? I can put on a straight face, but all this stuff is just going on in my head, right? It's just, this is the battle that I'm going through. And so I carry on. I go up to the cashier, and we've been in the retail business 15 years, so I'm always kind of critiquing other businesses. Are they getting eye contact? Are they saying hello? Are they giving me a greeting? So I play this silly game. I go up to the counter, and I won't say a word until they respond to me, right? And so... The, late, the checker doesn't say hello, and so I got $100 of groceries in here, and, and I'm fuming again. I can't believe she hasn't acknowledged me, right? And so, you guys, this is the silly games and the, that I go through my head. This is the silliness that I'm dealing with, right? Because agape love never waits for someone to initiate them. They initiate. They don't wait for acknowledgement. They acknowledge, right? And so this is the cancer that's inside of me. This is what I'm pleading with God to remove because I just can't affect this change on myself, by myself. I need the Holy Spirit to affect this change inside of me. Number two, if you want to increase and abound in love, it's going to require a broken will, guys. Mark, can you read First Timothy 1.5? But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Yeah, so to love from a pure heart, I would suggest that is a broken will, guys. There is a, a book by Soren Kierkegaard, Purity of Heart is to Will One Will, right? Willing one will requires a broken will. Not Luke nine twenty three and 24. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So God requires a man to lose his life. So what do you think that process looks like, guys? Is a, does a guy lose his life? And then God takes that lost life and throws it in a heavenly washing machine just to scrub it down and give it back to you? Of course not. When a man begins to break himself and lose himself, he's losing himself, but he's gaining much more of something a lot more important, which is Christ himself. Then I came across this verse in Matthew fourteen seventeen, and it just spoke to me. They said to him, we here only have five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, 
he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Yeah, that's good. So the great Oswald Chambers, over and over again, calls us to be broken bread and poured out wine. And as I read this passage, I thought, wow, doesn't this passage illustrate the life of a disciple, right? As you get in the the lives of guys around you, guys are going to use you, they're going to abuse you, right? You're going to pour love into them. They're going to seem like they never fill up. You're going to pour more love and more love and more love. And you're going to spend years with the guy, right? And then you're going to run into what I ran into last week. After spending years with a guy, I find out that he's been cheating on his wife. And, I mean, it just left me broken. And so this, this verse just spoke to me because I thought, wow. I mean, here, here I am. I'm, I, I feel like I'm picking up the pieces of my life. But lo and behold, as I pick up the pieces, there's more bread in my basket than I ever had when I started. And guys, that's the process. As you lose your life for the sake of Christ, he's going to fill you up with more than you ever started with. Second Corinthians 4.10 says, Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. John 3.30 says, He must increase, I must decrease. So in essence, you're kind of like a spiritual glow stick, right? A glow stick is only effective when it's broken. So love will grow and abound also when you act on it. Mark, can you read Ephesians 5, 1 and 2? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So God calls us to walk in love. I just don't love my translation because it it just kind of, I just get a sense of, it's like a walk in the park, or it's like some 70s mantra, right? You're just cruising along, walking in love. So I think I found a much better description for this word walk in love uh, in 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So it's interesting, that same word for walk in Ephesians is the same word for prowl around. And it's peripateo, forgive my Greek. Um, But it means to prowl around. So just as Satan prowls around looking for someone to devour... God calls us to prowl around looking for someone to love. We're to be on the hunt, seeking to love others. That word also means so occupied with. So I ask you, what are you guys so occupied with? Are you so occupied with loving your neighbor or the guy next to you or the one you don't even know? How much time do you give thinking about loving others? Is it what occupies your time? Or is it more your job, or becoming rich, or being important? Jesus wants us to be occupied with the same thing that he was occupied with, and that's giving your life as a sacrifice. We love God by loving what he loves. 
and God loves people. Let's talk a little bit now about the value of love. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Yeah, that word affection, it means to desire earnestly. So how much do you desire to impart your life to another? How much time do you think about that? I get so much encouragement uh, from Mark here. As I, as, I, um, as I watch him and how he runs his house, he always, like, like when we were young, he always has an open door policy. If I'm over there on a Saturday, I'm usually passing someone who they're discipling. It's a young couple. Or if I'm at the gas station, you know, he's always driving by with someone in his car. Or if it's late at night, I ask him, where are you going? Oh, I'm just going to go take a guy to pick up some kids. You know, he, he gives his life for other people. He's such an encouragement. So if you put a high value on people, they will become important to you. Brent, tell me if I'm wrong, because um, I know you're, uh, you know your gems, but a high-quality emerald is much more rare than a diamond. Is that true? It's what I read on the Internet. Yeah. But it's interesting. We place more value on diamonds. Diamonds have value to us because we put the value on the diamond. And I have many uh, friends who own Apple stock, and Apple stock means nothing to me. I could care less if Apple stock goes up or down in value. It's because I have no investment in it, right? But I have friends who own Apple stock, and they got it on their phone. They're tracking it day by day, hour by hour to see what's happening with it, right? So people will become important to you if you begin to make an investment in them. So that's one of my prayers that I've been begging God for is that I would see people the way that God sees them. Much more valuable than diamonds in Apple stock are people. They're more important than the cause, the company, the organizations, or the institution. It's the individual that has value above all because of what Christ did. I mean, think about the value of love God put on people. Right? Value is always determined what the buyer is willing to pay. And the value God put on an individual was the shed blood of Christ. The only perfect man to walk this earth. And he, he gave himself up for us. Now that's love, gentlemen. You've been bought up, you've been bought with the price. First Corinthians says six twenty says you've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Forgive me. But my relationship with my mom now uh, 
90 days after I first told her I loved her, she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Anyway, I'm just glad I, <clears throat> that God put on my heart to work on this relationship with my mom. And I can't believe 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, love never fails. And it hasn't. My mom's learning to love and I'm learning to love. We're learning together. She's professing Christ. She's in her third round of chemo. She's sick as a dog. But she said something profound the other day to me. It's probably not going to be that profound to you, but I was giving her a hug about a month ago. And I gave her a one-arm hug, and she said, two arms, please. So guys, Soren Kierkegaard, in that book, Purity of Heart, he said, Oh, 11th hour, wherever art present, how all has changed. And that's in regards to repentance, guys. Time's running out. What do you need to take care of? Hebrews 3, 7 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Has God been dealing you with, on, you, with, on you with something? And your answer tends to be, Yes, Lord, but you're always fiercely ready, but you never act. My encouragement, guys, is just start moving. Love you guys. Love you,